to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode two of our podcast regarding the Business Courts Benchbook. My name is Megan Adams, and I'm a judge on the Superior Court in Delaware and an associate editor of the Business Courts Benchbook. We are so happy that you have joined us. This second podcast focuses on electronic discovery. We are fortunate to be joined by some of the most knowledgeable judges in the country regarding e-discovery. Without further delay, I would like to first introduce you to the participants in our podcast today. First, we have the Honorable Timothy S. Driscoll. Judge Driscoll is a justice of the Supreme Court of the state of New York. Judge Driscoll was elected in November 2007 and serves on the Nassau County Commercial Division. Judge Driscoll is the co-chairman of the Chief Administrative Judges Working Group on Electronic Discovery. Judge Driscoll is also an adjunct professor at Brooklyn Law School and Nassau Community College and a teaching member at the Harvard Law School's Trial Advocacy Workshop. Second, we have the Honorable Mary M. Johnson. Judge Johnson is my colleague on the Superior Court of Delaware, where she was appointed in September 2003. Judge Johnson currently serves on the Complex Commercial Litigation Division of the Superior Court, a specialized division of the Superior Court that hears business disputes worth $1 million or more. Judge Johnson's background involves practicing corporate and commercial litigation in the Delaware courts and serving as the chief counsel of the Delaware Supreme Court's Office of Disciplinary Counsel. Judge Johnson is a frequent lecturer on ethics and discovery practices in Delaware. And finally, we have the Honorable Jerome B. Abrams. Judge Abrams has been a Minnesota District Court judge since 2008. He is a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates and serves on the board of directors of the National Center for State Courts and the American College of Business Court Judges. Judge Abrams is also currently working on the United Nations Judicial Integrity Initiative. Most pertinent to our discussion today, Judge Abrams has written and spoken extensively on electronic discovery and ESI, along with civil practice and best judicial practices. Also on the line is the editor-in-chief of the Business Courts Benchbook, Vanessa Tiradentes, a partner at the law firm of Golden Ratner in Chicago, Illinois. So first, I'm gonna start with a question that I'm gonna to ask to everyone. With respect to discovery in the business courts, how is it different than in other cases that you see? And I'll start with Judge Driscoll. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for the opportunity to be with my colleagues um, at, 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 the, at the bench, and especially to work with Vanessa, who has done yeoman's work corralling about a dozen judges and lawyers to come up with our bench book on best practices for practice in the business courts. And, and I, I commend it, and I, again, I commend Vanessa, and I thank Vanessa profusely for, for all of her work with all of us. Specific to your question, Megan, um, commercial lawyers joke, and thus I can repeat, I think the joke is that they are the academy of pretrial lawyers. This is what they do. They, they commercial lawyers, business court lawyers, are involved in extensive discovery all the time. With cases of such a high financial magnitude, there is often too much risk in those cases going to trial. So those cases are often won or lost at the discovery point of the case. 
Okay, how about you, Judge Johnston? Well, the main differences that I see are, some of them are obvious. There's simply more discovery, there's more at stake, uh, there are more financial uh, resources available, so the parties can engage in more extensive discovery. Uh, there are also more, there's also more potential for more motion practice, which means you've got to bring special masters in uh, some of the time. And also, there is more cross-jurisdictional practice. So you really have to be aware of the differing rules in each jurisdiction. You wouldn't think that they would be so different, but uh, they are. Even in electronic discovery, each jurisdiction has its own practices and preferences. I agree. And how about you, Judge Abrams? How do you see discovery and business course differ? Well, uh, typically we've, we find the parties, uh, how shall I say, better prepared and more willing to pour resources and issues related to discovery. I, I, I can't imagine, uh, in these cases as described by my colleagues, I can't imagine in, in, in the large litigations anybody leaving any stone unturned, and it's frequently uh, we're the ones that are kind of minding the rock pile when they show up. So it's, it's, it's always busy, and, 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 and I don't mean to be pejorative about it. I expect it. I mean, it's, it's, it's what you would expect people being thorough and diligent in connection with large commercial matters to do on behalf of their clients. So that uh, actually leads in really well to my next question, which is how can we manage discovery in business court? What ways are you seeing um, to manage discovery? We'll start from the judge's perspective with Judge Driscoll. Sure, thank you. So, so I think one of the hallmarks of business courts and commercial courts is active management by the judges of the discovery process. Um, my colleagues who sit outside the business courts often say that, well, we'll leave it to the lawyers to decide how to, how to set the course of the litigation. Not so in, in the business courts, because with the cases being of the magnitude that all of us handle, those cases get out of control very, very quickly. As I often say, cases are not like wine. They don't get better with age. They're like cheese. They start to stink as they get older. So it's incumbent upon the business court judge to manage the litigation and particularly to manage the discovery, which is the bulk of the litigation process. Among the techniques that judges can use and among the techniques that, that I use, and, and many of the techniques borrow from our brothers and sisters in the federal courts, are limitations on interrogatories. The federal courts in their wisdom many years ago decided that 25 interrogatories, including subparts, was more than sufficient absent leave of court. That's a technique that we've adopted in the New York commercial division a couple of years ago, and I know that many of my brothers and sisters in state courts, business courts throughout the country do that as well. Uh, also a limitation on depositions. Uh, the federal court limitation is, is 10 per side, uh, with seven hours, uh, a, a seven hours per deposition being the presumptive time period, again, to be extended for good cause. That we've also borrowed um, in, the, um, in the New York courts. No boilerplate objections to document requests. In the old days, uh, we, you could have general objections to document requests. And, and that went by the wayside in 2015 uh, with the amendment to Rule 34. The federal courts, again, that's been adopted many times in, in many, many state courts, including my own. I think the other technique uh, that, that judges often use is how to resolve disputes in, in uh, uh, discovery. I, I often joke that uh, motion practice in discovery disputes is like root canal. It's never welcome, but sometimes it's actually necessary. 
Well, how can you make sure that it's absolutely necessary? And that is to have a meaningful meet and confer, not a drive-by meet and confer, not a meet and confer in the courtroom or on the Zoom call for two minutes before the judge gets on the bench, but a, a meaningful meet and confer. And then another technique that I use is I require the lawyers to send me a joint letter identifying their problems that still exist at, even after the meet and confer. So I'm going to channel my another uh, pop culture reference and my joint letter is channeling the Spice Girls. Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And, and that's what the lawyers are to do. And that's, again, a technique to, to, to cause them to work together and also bring to me the issue as it is teed up as best as possible. So for that, Judge Driscoll, is it after a motion to compel has been filed and then you see that letter or how does that work? It's actually before the motion to compel is filed. It's designed to, to make the motion to compel the last resort. So it's the, it's the, 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 the initial um, uh, uh, salvo, if you will, is, is writing a letter to me with each side outlining the problem. I then direct usually that they meet and confer. I direct that after meeting and conferring, send me a point, more pointed letter about what issues remain between you. Um, and, and then and only then will I direct that a motion to compel be filed. And as a result, in 11 years of doing this kind of work, uh, I've, I've handled probably about two dozen at most uh, motions to compel or motions for protective order. Oh, wow. It's pretty effective then, I take it. It keeps the appeal rate low also. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's helpful. Um, Judge Johnston, how about you from the Delaware courts or any other perspectives that you have? Well, I, the first thing I try to do, uh, piggybacking on the tell me what you want, what you really, really want, is to get the parties to focus on that in terms of issues in the case. One of the things I ask them is the same thing I ask with regard to hard copy document discovery or depositions or anything. I say, okay, tell me exactly what you want specifically. And then I try to get them to narrow it. You know, they'll want 10 years worth of, of communications. I say, okay, now tell me what, what re we try to narrow the date parameters. I try to narrow the um, recipient uh, sender parameters. And then I say, why do you want it? And tell me what issue in the case this goes to. And I try to make them focus on that. And then, uh, and then I also ask them, and this, this sometimes will, will make people think twice. I say, okay, give me your best case scenario of what you think you're going to find. Because, you know, the other side will say it's just a fishing expedition, whatever. And so, I, so the seeking party, I ask them to say, okay, tell me in your best day what you think you're going to find, what type of thing you think you're going to find. I don't want them to reveal case strategy, but, but tell me what you think you're going to find. Another thing that I have parties do at the initial scheduling conference, which isn't directly related to discovery, is I tell them, especially if it's a jury trial, you ought to be drafting your verdict sheet at the, at very shortly after the scheduling conference, because that verdict sheet, which would be, which is a, a living document, it'll change and change, but that should direct uh, how you're focusing discovery, what depositions you take, and if it's a non-jury trial, that's okay. So draft your bullet points for your opening statement and your closing argument early on so that when I ask you as the judge, why do you want these documents, what does it go to, you can say, okay, the, it goes to the issue of whatever the issue is, and this time period is relevant because of, of this. 
And I don't know whether you want to talk about it now, but of course, sampling and quick peek are ways to manage the discovery. So I don't know if we want to get into that later. Um, you can talk about that. And why don't you also talk about your use of special masters, Joe Johnson? Okay. Um, I am not an expert on quick peek and sampling, but I've, when I've had, when I have one party saying, uh, this we're going they're going to need millions of documents with this search and the other party saying no it won't be that many i say okay okay so if we agree the relevant time period is these two years just just give me give me every 50th document that you've found and or give the other side every 50th document or whatever we just and we say because one side will say there can't be anything relevant in this search and the other side will say this is critical so I say, fine, let's, let's figure out a sampling. And that is sometimes is effective in resolving the disputes. The other quick peek is um, something that I don't use that much and somebody else can probably, I don't know whether Judge Driscoll or Judge Abrams can speak to that a little more effectively um, uh, because I have not used that technique very often. The special masters, I tell my uh, uh, counsel at the scheduling conference that they get, they get two discovery disputes two free discovery disputes, like two strikes. You know, they can bring two discovery disputes to me. The third discovery dispute that they bring to me, we must consider whether a special master must be appointed. I'm not saying it will be, but uh, we need to, to figure that out. And then you have to tailor the selection of the special master to the needs of the case. Do you need someone who is a complete e-discovered guru do you need someone who's uh if it's if it's a coverage dispute for example you probably need a special master who really knows the insurance business um and and they the parties pay the discovery master uh and we we used to have them send checks into the court and the court distributes it forget that we're out of that business now the discovery master will bill them separately. We have sample orders, but everyone has to sign on to the order. Um, and, and everything that they find is essentially appealable to the judge, reviewable by the judge. I have to say, though, that I pick my masters with consent of counsel very carefully, and it is very rare that I would, uh, would not completely defer to the discovery master because otherwise that's simply defeats the purpose of having someone uh, come in and, and assist the court. Uh, and, and if I could just uh, uh, piggyback on what Joe Johnson said, um, Joe Johnson alluded to, to sample verdict sheets in her answer. She alluded to sample orders. Um, this is like the old Prego spaghetti sauce commercial in the 80s. It's in there. Those are all in there in the business court bench book. Uh, many of the samples uh, we have courtesy and thanks to Judge Johnson herself. And I, I, I've used the samples and found them very helpful. And one other small point I'm, I'm going to raise is and with the appointment of special masters, one has to be careful about specifying a standard for review. A lot of jurisdictions, it's just de novo, and that's the default unless the parties agree otherwise. Some places, it's, it's based upon an order of the court. Uh, I, I had a very unhappy situation inheriting a file from another judge who had no standard for review for the special master, so everything was de novo. So, so they avoided... The, you know, getting the, the, the discovery motions brought as motions to compel and everything got teed up as, as, as an appeal from a ruling of the special master. And I found myself spending nights and weekends actually doing orders in Excel. 
because there were so many things that were being appealed. Nearly every decision made by the special master. I had one where I did I had 196 different things that were being appealed. And the only way I could do it was in Excel. But the, I guess that's a point both to the judges as well as practitioners. If you don't want to reproduce things, and even if you want to avoid a motion to co compel, just be wary of an order appointing a special master that doesn't have a standard for review built into it. Thank you. That's that's helpful. And I'm going to come to you next for my next question as well, Judge Abrams. Um, it sort of ties into this, but we talked about standard orders for special masters, but how about a standard order for e-discovery in general? Uh, does your court have one? And Well, we kind of used to. I mean, we, we have one in terms of trying to enforce discovery plans. But what's really, what's, what's been evolving, especially with ESI, as you know, it's in so many different places. And the importance of its presence in a particular place has as much to do with it in most of these cases as is, is, is one's ability to disinter it and make it available, as well as what impact it might have on the litigation. So, you know, the, the classic example is somebody wants emails. So it's gonna be on somebody's computer, sender recipient, it's gonna be on somebody's phone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I get down to is this, is I used to try and do things very, very standard. Now I rely heavily on the parties with their discovery plan. And if they've got a plan on how to do it, usually, usually I'm supportive. And I, and I only have to kind of get down in the weeds when, when they have got a problem making that information available. I used to be a big fan of, of, of standard, I got standard orders for everything but I, I tend to not do it with ESI. Uh, and another factor that comes in, and now we're gonna talk about it, it, it has to do with expense and proportionality. It's pretty hard anymore to force anybody to do anything. And I don't presuppose I know more about their case than they do. So, so if they know what they wanna to get to, and if they think they know how to get to it, I'm kind of only in there to make sure that, 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 that there's a fair process. So in answer to your question, a really long answer to a really short question, Used to have standard orders, not so much anymore. Uh, Judge Johnson, Judge Driscoll, how about you? Standard orders for e-discovery? Uh, I, I, I do have them, but like Judge Abrams, I, I'm happy to amend them to the needs of the case and happy to consider another judge's standard order. We don't, we don't have a standard statewide order per se. Uh, there are 26 judges throughout New York State who sit in the commercial division, and each of us have some kind of variant um, and so I, 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 I'm like Judge Abrams, I'm tending to, to modify uh, standard orders such that they are no longer standard. Um, but one of the, one of the issues that, that often comes up um, in, in e-discovery, because I know we wanted to tie into that, is uh, technical competence and lawyers coming into the courtroom and not being as well versed in their clients' um, uh, data collection system. So again, when we talk about uh, commercial cases and business courts, they are founded to, to bring complex business cases to resolution more expeditiously than they would be absent a specialized court. So we're always aware, and I think both, uh, certainly the judge is aware of delay producing events. A delay producing event is, the, is a lawyer's uh, inability or perhaps not as high level of technical competence in her client or his client's, in her client's uh, computer system. The other delay producing event is an argument over cost shifting. Um, uh, you know, who pays and when does someone pay? And, and, and my view is that we can talk about that later. Let's, let's exchange what we have first. Uh, and I suppose this is um, somewhat of a disciple of the Sedona principles. Let's exchange what we have and let's fight about what it means and let's fight about who has to pay for it later. So I think that's a, a very important thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is, that, is, is the, 
don't lose track of the big picture. The big picture is here. We're talking about exchanging all this information. What's going to happen if we get out of and we graduate from the Academy of Pretrial Law and we actually have to go to trial? Is the information that we thought about going to be authentic? Is it going to be relevant? Is it going to be the best evidence? Is it going to be hearsay? And then is it going to be understandable to the trier of fact? And, and, and I think it's so incumbent upon, upon lawyers and upon judges managing business cases to keep that to keep those big picture principles in mind. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's helpful for people to keep in mind. I think sometimes people get lost in that, especially in these big commercial cases, being pre-trial lawyers, as you said. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask finally to Judge Johnston about if she has a standard order for discovery, for e-discovery and any big picture ideas that she can talk about before moving to our final question. I do not have a standard order, but there are a number of sample orders. Um, I have been so fortunate that not just the Delaware lawyers, but the lawyers from other jurisdictions who come in and try these cases are, are so good and so professional and frankly, so much more knowledgeable about e-discovery than I am that I always, my default is if they agree on the form of order, I'm going to sign it. Um, if, if later on it turns out I regret my decision because of something's in there, well, we can just work that out later. But I tend to um, uh, tend to leave it to them. Okay, great. So our last question is: I'm going to first ask to the judges, and then I'll <clears throat> let Vanessa uh, ask answer the final question. But what changes have you seen as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic with respect to discovery and business courts? And we'll just go from Judge Abrams to Judge Driscoll and then Judge Johnson. You know, the, what we, of course, we miss the things that are so ordinary. Frankly, I, I would enjoy a good squabble in my courtroom among lawyers, but you know, my courtroom's really not open. There's some classes of hearings they have to do in person, but for the most part, we don't have those. I don't think that there's been a particular uh, pandemic impact in connection with 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 discovery or and specifically e-discovery. Uh, what what I do find is is we with civil with lawyers handling civil cases, and I've been on a number of webinars and, I, and I've been responsible for a few webinars. What we found is that lawyers dealing with civil cases, generally speaking, are conditioned or trained to deal with stuff remotely, far more effectively than lawyers handling criminal cases, uh, which is a, a strange phenomenon. So I'm able to run a fairly full calendar. I mean, I'm just looking on this week. I think I've got like five or six dispositive motions, 20 plus uh, non-dispositive motions. None of them are particularly dealing with discovery as is a main theme or a main problem. I mean, life goes on because we can do this fairly effectively uh, over Zoom. I do have some protocols for, for contested hearings that, that I prepared as a result of this, and I send this out. And I get that out in advance, and that's largely to deal with the exhibits that 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 are either necessary uh, for parties' position on something, or or sort of need to be part of the process to decide. But other than that, I really haven't done anything special, and I haven't found the need to do so apart from handling exhibits. Okay, Judge Truscoe, I know that you have been particularly busy over this pandemic, but um, is it with respect to e-discovery or other matters? I, I think it's it been in general very busy as we as we geared up towards an entirely remote calendar. If you had asked me on March 16th, which is when the New York State courts uh, shut down for in-person appearances, uh, how do you like dealing with lawyers remotely? I would have said, I, I don't, I never do. Uh, I, a telephone conference is, is the, the limit of what I'll do, and that's only for a very discreet issue. And now I'm managing an entire calendar similar to Judge Abrams, 
uh, remotely, and it's it's working very well. And I think it really is due to the strength of the lawyers and the and desire of the lawyers to 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 serve their clients. And as Judge Johnson said, their excellence, their excellence, and their knowledge of of their cases and and their as Judge Abrams said, their desire to to work and work virtually. Um, COVID is changing the practice of law, not just on the day, I think on the hour, and changing the way that judges handle cases on the hour. So I, I think the one key thing that I've taken away from this is that we really are human beings first and judges and lawyers second. So I've been starting just about every court appearance with asking the lawyers, how are you? Are you okay? And is your family okay? And uh, sometimes I hear about lawyers who have unfortunately had to bury uh, uh, parents uh, or who have re or, or are still recovering from the disease themselves. So I think it's really taught me just how thankful I am um, to, to live in this great country and do the kind of work that we do. And also a reminder of the, one of the most important qualities a judge has to have, which is patience. Patience with, patience with the lawyers, patience with the litigants, and patience with herself or himself too. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Judge Johnson, I'll let you answer, and then I'll ask Vanessa. Right. Well, that those are those. I don't want to duplicate anything. The, the thing that I've seen most is uh, discussions about protocols for video depositions. I've seen some really thoughtful protocols talking about how to confer remotely with your client, breakout rooms, um, sending documents ahead in sealed envelopes, and then of course you've got to trust the attorneys to comply with those. So actually, I think may happen is in the future it's possible we're going to see disputes about whether or not there was a compliance with those protocols. Okay, Vanessa, let's you, let you um, have the last word here. What changes have you seen as a practitioner in Illinois as, as a result of the pandemic with respect to discovery? So specifically with discovery, um, I think the biggest change was the change to the Illinois Supreme Rule, Court rules regarding uh, depositions and allowing for the video depositions to continue during this pandemic. Um, one of the things that they did highlight was, so Illinois is not seven hours, it's three hours for a deposition, which really makes people think very hard about the questions um, that they're going to pose and not waste time. And so one of the things that the Supreme Court rules did change was to say that any uh, technology issues are not going to count towards that time period to account for the fact that most of the time your witness is not going to be with you and may not have the same technological capabilities that you do um, as the attorney or as the deposing attorney. So that is one factor, but certainly from the practitioner's view, there's a lot of concern about witness tampering. And I think I echo Judge Johnson's concerns that I think that's something we are going to see going forward, especially in the very contentious cases where you you know one of the things with zoom yes you can see people's faces but you can't see what they're doing with their hands and you can't see what's on their screen and then that's a particular concern because there's no way to make sure that there is nothing else happening on someone's computer screen while they're being deposed um, so i think that's the biggest concern for most of us with not being in the same room with the witnesses um, that we're deposing uh, frankly the, the rest of the technology works well and um, i think that it's it's a great tool but there's certainly going to be a lot of concerns with that going forward. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for your thoughtful discussion today. I know I really appreciate you taking the time and I hope our listeners do too. Like I said, this is a second in our series of about five or six podcasts. So please be on the lookout for more podcasts in the future. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.